we have been looking at First Chronicles, uh, and we've been in this section that is the genealogy. Somebody asked me, what made you pick the genealogies to do? And we want to go through all of the scripture, because we believe that it's the entire counsel of God that builds us up as believers. So today, in First Chronicles chapter 7 and 8, we are continuing to look at these genealogies for the purpose, remember the original purpose was so that when these people are coming back from Babylon could know the areas of land that they were going to be living in. And so we have looked at, starting essentially in chapter 4, we've been looking at the areas of land these people are going to live in. When we hit chapter 6, we were looking at the Levites, and they had specific cities that were scattered throughout the whole nation. But here now we come to uh, the descendants of Issachar and where they're going to live. So, Judy, um, what's your name? Jeannie, if you would show slide 2, please. Um, that shows what we've looked at already, five or six tribes already. Then slide three shows uh, what the cities of refuge look like and the cities of the Levites. Now we come to the tribe of Issachar, verses 1 through 5. You can follow along. I'm going to read. It says, Now the sons of Issachar, Tola, Pua, Jashub, and Shimron, four. The sons of Tola, Uzi, Raphiah, Jeriel, Jamei, Ibsam, and Shemuel, heads of their father's houses, namely of Tola, Mighty warriors of their generations, the number in the days of David being 22,600. Now the son of Uzi is Rahiah, and the sons of Israhiah, Michael, Obadiah, Joel, and Izahiah. All five of them were chief men, and along with them, by their generations, according to their father's houses, were units of the army for war, 36,000. For they had many wives and sons. Their kinsmen, belonging to all the clans of Issachar, were in all 87,000 mighty warriors enrolled by genealogy. So a few different times there, you're introduced to this concept that these are mighty warriors. Now, the particular names that our attention is drawn to have to do with the sons of this fellow by the name of Tola. As you read there, or followed along, it's Uzi, Rephaiah, Jeriel, Jamei, Ibsam, and Shemuel. Two different descriptions are given for them. One, they're said that they are the heads of their father's houses, uh, and then in another place that they're called to be mighty warriors. Now, remind yourself, the reason why we're trying to figure out who are the heads of the houses, who are the heads of the clans, is because they're trying to determine, the people knew their genealogies. They're over in, um, in Babylon, and they know their grandfather's name, but he may not be alive anymore, but they know his name. And so here, the grandfather's name, so to speak, are being listed, and it's being told roughly where those people settled. So now these younger grandchildren, they can come back and they can establish themselves in those particular locations. So that's why we're learning about the heads of the father's houses. The second thing we learn is that they are mighty warriors of their generation. In the United States Capitol building down in Washington, D.C., you have a series of rooms there that is called Statuary Hall. I guess more properly it would be called Statuary Halls. Uh, the largest of those rooms was the first meeting chambers of the House of Representatives. Well, as the nation began to grow and they needed more space for the delegates, they built a, an additional wing on, and now they had this beautiful room with nothing to do with. And so a decision was made, let's ask each of the states to submit a statue of one of their or two of their favorite sons. So have you, anybody been there, Statuary Hall? A few of you? Come on, folks. Get out a little bit. Get some uh, culture. All right, all right. so it's, it's very lovely. You've got to call your congressman to get permission to go in. But it, anyway, it's very, very nice. Uh, so each state is asked to submit a statue. New Jersey, Philip uh, Carney, a military hero, and Richard Stockton. You may have heard of the town named after him. He was a Revolutionary War hero. Pennsylvania, anybody here from Pennsylvania? All right. Originally, okay, thank you. But in Pennsylvania, they have two. These are the two most favorite sons of the entire state of Pennsylvania, John Muhlenberg. His name is really John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg, and I think he gets a statue because his name is the longest. Uh, And then also Robert Fulton, the inventor of the steamboat. And I think it's pretty cool. It's a nice touch. These people are supposed to be people that sort of represent the character, uh, the personality of the state of which they represent. Now, if we, I think, if we were going to, do we have a picture? That's what it looks like, by the way. So you don't have to go anymore. It's right there. There you go. You've, you've brought it in. Uh, if we were going to make a statuary hall of the tribes of Israel, when we came across the tribe of Issachar, the statue of the favorite son probably wouldn't be a son, but it would be the favorite daughter of the people of Issachar. Because perhaps the most famous, other than Issachar himself, 
but perhaps the most famous and the most significant person of the tribe of Issachar is a woman by the name of Deborah, spelled Deborah uh, in your Bibles there, um, but Deborah. And I appreciate Deborah. We read about Deborah in uh, the book of Judges, chapter 4 and 5. In chap- that's it. But in chapter 4 and 5, we are told two things about this woman. We are told that she was a prophetess uh, of the nation of Israel, and we are told that she was a judge during the period before they had kings in the nation of Israel. Again, the story is told for us in chapters 4 and 5, and you can read it. Let me give you a little background on the judges here for a second. Now, the judges were a collection of 11 men and the one woman, Deborah, that ruled the nation of Israel, or sometimes a portion of the tribes of the nation of Israel. And this was, again, during the days before the nation had a king. We read again that there was 12 of them. Some of them are more well-known. You know their name, Samson. Uh, You know the name Gideon. Uh, Many of you also know the name of Deborah. Now, these judges, they didn't serve successive terms like a king might or like our presidents do or something like that, but they, they kind of rose up for a period of time and they sort of became a voice of the Lord, calling people like a prophet would, for instance, offering guidance in how they should live their lives, things like don't worship idols, honor the Lord, etc., And then other times their calling, if you will, was that they would make decisions on things, much like a judge would do. Some cases even they would lead people into war uh, and go into battle. And that was kind of the role of these people. And they would rise up and then they would die. And and nobody would necessarily fill their place until a need was uh, again available to the nation of Israel. And then somebody else would rise up. Deborah, we learn, was there for about 200, she was there 200 years before King David. So somewhere around 1200 B.C. Now, as you read through the book of Judges, one of the things that you will discover is when a judge was in place and a judge was alive and kind of ruling, things were going great. Things were going real smoothly. People were listening to God. They were going in his direction. They were moving forward into battle. But when the judge would pass off the scene, every man would do what was right in his own eyes, as it says at the end of the book of Judges, and things would go awry and people would start to die, and there'd be all sorts of messes. And I think there's a a lesson for us uh, there that we can kind of pull back to our lives, similar to our walks with Christ. When we're receiving God's guidance in our lives through his word, when we're seeking him to lead us in our decision-making, like they would seek the judges for their decision-making, and when we're moving forward in the battle. Jay talked about this at the man ceremony we did for his son recently. But when we're moving forward into the battle and we're not retreating Um, from that spiritual battle that wars within us, that's when we're thriving. But it's when we're not seeking the Lord for wisdom. We're not going to him and his word to understand his ways. When we're not going forward in the battle, but we're just sort of hanging there and taking uh, the beating, so to speak, that's when we begin to see death rising up within us. And what's going on with my walk? Why am I not moving forward? Why am I stagnant? Why am I not where I was once before? Why have I backslidden? And those would be the reasons that I would suggest to you. So Deborah of the tribe of Issachar, she was a prophetess, mighty warrior that led the nation, again, as I said, for about 40 years. Now, these mighty warriors that we read about in First Chronicles, as descendants of Issachar, more than likely, just the way they kind of did things, they would have looked back to Deborah, and they would have seek to emulate their life after her. We want to be a people. So the parents, they would teach their kids, like our uh, ancestor Deborah, be like her. Be a person that goes forward into the battle. In Judges chapter 4, we're given a story where there was a fellow by the name of, uh, now I I don't even remember how you say it. I say Barak because we have a president named Barak. Um, Barak or Barak, Barak, is that it? Barak, Barak, thank you. Uh, I think he made that up. I'm not sure if he knows (laughs) that either. Um, But I had it and then I lost it because all I keep saying now is Barak. But there's this fellow, Barak, Uh, who essentially comes to Deborah and says, we need to go and we need to take care of these people. And then he's sort of like, but I'm not going to go. And she says, what are you talking about? The Lord said to go, we need to go. Come on, I'll lead the way, sort of thing. And she says this in Judges chapter 4, she says, does not the Lord go out before you? And it was that philosophy that I think is the reason why these descendants of Issachar were mighty warriors in the Lord. Because they were a people that they looked at the problems that were ahead of them. They looked at the challenges and the difficulties, the battle that was out there. But they were convinced, does not the Lord go out before you? Let's go out with the Lord and win this thing. That's a very important philosophy to have. Deborah and that little nugget of wisdom there 
uh, was passed down to her de uh, descendants. So if you look at the slide here, slide number six, this is where the people of Issachar were to settle. You can see the little arrow. As we continue to move in our passage here, verse six introduces us to the tribe of Benjamin. So slide seven shows you where the Benjamites, Benjaminites were, and it reads, verse six, now the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Beaker, uh, Jediel, three, the sons of Bela, Esbon, Uzi, Uziel, Jeremoth, and Eri, five, heads of fathers' houses, mighty warriors. And their enrollment by genealogies was 22,034. Don't you appreciate that it says N34? You know, as, as opposed to just, ah, it's about 22,000. Isn't it nice to know? You're like, I don't really know where you're going. Well, here's where I'm going. Isn't it nice to know that the Lord knows us by number? You know, and there's that extra four, that extra one person that he throws down there, he is aware of, and he knows us intimately. It continues, it says, now the son of Beaker, now isn't that like the Muppet Beaker, you know, me, 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 that fella there, I don't think it's the same one, uh, Zemira, Joash, Eleazar, Elinoi, Omri, Jeremoth, Abijah, Anatoth, and Elameth. All these were the sons of Beaker, and their enrollment by genealogies, according to their generations, as heads of their father's houses. They were mighty warriors. Uh, and the number was 22,200. Now the son of Jediel, Bilhan, and the sons of Bilhan, Jeush, Benjamin, Ehud, Chena, uh, Zethan, Tarshish, and Ahishashar. All these were the sons of Jediel, according to the heads of their father's houses. They were mighty warriors, 17,200, able to go to war. And Shepham and Huppam were the sons of Ur, Husham was the son of of Aher. Now Benjamin, as like the original of the tribes there, Benjamin was the youngest of Jacob, also known as Israel, of his 12 sons. Uh, Benjamin was the younger brother. Remember, he had, uh, Jacob had four different wives in which the sons were being uh, produced, and J uh, Benjamin was the youngest brother of Joseph that we know uh, pretty well. His mom was Rachel. Genesis 35 tells us that at the birth of Benjamin, that because of the complications of that birth, that his mom, Rachel, had died. And her dying words were essentially to her husband, name him Ben-Ani. And Ben-Ani means son of my sorrow. Well, how's that a name to carry around? You know, like I killed mom or something. Um, and that's all that dad thinks, you know, when he calls me, uh, is that I caused him great sorrow. And so with wisdom, uh, Jacob decided, you know, I'm not going to name him son of my sorrow. I'm going to name him Ben-Hamin or Benjamin, and Benjamin is a name which means son of my strength, or son of my right hand. That's a much better name. You know, you're the son of my strength. You're awesome, and I love you. Um, so the tribe of Benjamin, like Benjamin, it was a small tribe. It was uh, one of the smallest tribes in the nation. Eventually, it was essentially swallowed up by the larger tribe of Judah, which formed the southern empire when the nation split in the days of uh, in the days following King Solomon, the nation split, and Benjamin was pretty much uh, swallowed up into the tribe of Judah in the southern portion of the nation. Now, the next verse or section that we come to is actually only one verse, and that's the sons of Naphtali, or the descendants of Naphtali. Uh, and here it reads, Now, the sons of Naphtali was Jazael, Iguni, Jezer, and Shalom, the descendants of Bilhah. Now, this isn't every uh, kid that was ever born in the tribe of Naphtali, but these are the clan leaders as we've been discussing, we have a slide. Uh, slide number eight shows you where this family set up shop. Now, as we move to verse 14, we come to the tribe of Manasseh. Now, we've already told you that the tribe of Manasseh, they had land on the eastern portion, uh, eastern side of the Jordan River, just a small area of land. You remember in that portion uh, or that area, Reuben and Gad, two of the tribes decided you know what, this is good enough for us. It's a good lesson for us. Crossing over the Jordan, we sing our hymns and all this sorts of stuff, and oftentimes we picture the Jordan uh, symbolically as someday I'm going to die, I'm going to cross over the Jordan, and I'm going to go to heaven. I'm going to enter the promised land. Uh, but I'm not sure scripturally if, if that's the best analogy for us to use because there's still fighting in the promised land that we read about in the scriptures. I don't want to go to heaven and wrestle with my sin. I don't want to go to heaven and fight with giants and all this sort of stuff. So I think a better picture is it's the victorious life that Christ would have us to have, the, the life of victory as we enter in and we walk in the ways of the Lord. So if that is how you want to look at the promised land uh, sort of uh, symbolically or metaphorically, then 
for people to come to the edge of entering into all that God has for us and the life that God has, wants us to live and walk with him and people to come to the edge of that and to say, you know what, this is good enough. I'm content living like this. A little bit of sin in my life, nothing too serious, you know, not causing too much trouble. Well, that's really sad because all of the riches and the glories that Christ has for us. Again, read Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3 where, where the Apostle Paul spells out to us all the riches that are found in our, us as believers in Christ. And to look at all that and to say, yeah, I don't know, no thanks, not worth the effort or something. So these guys, Manasseh amongst them with Reuben and Gad, they come to the edge of the Jordan River and they say, Reuben and Gad is, we're just going to stay over here. This is good for us. Now the Manassites, they also have a lot of um, animals and stuff like that. And so they decide, hey, can we have a little bit of area of land over here as well? But they're still going to receive a, a much, much larger portion of land in what we call the promised land. Uh, Manasseh, remember, a couple things. Uh, he is not a son of Israel um, properly. He's a grandson of Jacob. Uh, he is one of Joseph's two kids, him and Ephraim uh, being the other one. And we read about them in verses 14 through 19. It says, Now the sons of Manasseh, Azrael, whom the Aramean concubine bore, she bore Machir, the father of Gilead. And Machir took a wife for Huppam and Shuppam. Uh, the name for his sister was Makkah. And the name of the second was Zelophehad, and Zelophehad had daughters. And Makkah, the wife of Machir, bore a son, and she called his name Peresh. And the name of his brother was Sheresh. And his sons were Ulam and Rakam. The son of Ulam, Bedan. These were the sons of Gilead, the son of Makkah, the son of Manasseh. And his sister Hamaloketh bore Ishdad, Abiezar, and Malah. The sons of Shemida were Ahayan, Shechem, Liki, and Anayam. Now, one people that I want to draw your attention to here is this man by the name of Zelof Had. Let's all say that. Zelof Had. You say Had. I'll say Zelof. Come on. Stay with me. All right. Zelof Had. Yeah, and you got to get a little Ha in there at the end. So that's kind of fun. So whenever I say Zelof, you say Had. Zelof? Good. You're playing with me. Good. Fun. All right. So anyway, Zelof Had is this fellow. Now, he dies. Now, and this is during the days of Moses. We have this in Numbers chapter 27. So he's wandering around there with Moses. He is a slave that came out of Egypt, crossed over the sea, all those things. He saw the mighty hand of God. Um, but time went on and he passed away. As he passed away, he had no children, no sons, I should say. Now, uh, when they were to go into the promised land, if they were going to go into the promised land, land would have been carved up for them. And Zelof, you get this land. Zelof, you get this land over here. Um, but if he died, then it goes to the son, and so, or the, the eldest of the sons. Well, he had no sons. And so these daughters now, they come to Moses, they uh, muster up the courage, and they come to Moses and they say, look, our father was going to inherit area, uh, land in this area, but he died and he had no sons. You're going to remember us as daughters, aren't you? And, and my father's name is going to continue on, and his land is going to continue our, in our family, right? And so Moses says, you know what, interesting. Let me go to the Lord, which is very wise. And Moses goes to the Lord, and he inquires of the Lord, and essentially the Lord says back to Moses, they're right. Give them a possession of the land, and from now on, if any man dies without any sons, then the land should pass on to here, shall transfer on to the daughters. And that became kind of the way from Numbers 27 on. So Zelophehad, uh, sorry, anyway, thank you. Uh, this fella here uh, passes on, and his daughters come up, and they say to Moses, what about our area of land? The reason why Ezra here in 1 Chronicles brings it up, remember, is who lived over here, who lived over there, who lived over there? Well, his point is the daughters of Zelof lived over there, and that is why they have that bit of land. All right, does that make sense? You see how we're getting to that? Um, that is from Numbers chapter 27, if you wanted to go back and read a little bit further. Now, verse 20 describes for us the area of land allotted for Ephraim. And this is Joseph's other son. So again, this is the grandson of Israel. And starting in verse 20, it says, Now the sons of Ephraim, Shuthalah, and Bered, his son, Tehath, his son, Eliada, Tehath, Zabad, Shuthalah, and Ezer, and Iliad, whom the men of Gath, who were born in the land, killed, because they came down to raid their livestock. And Ephraim, their father, mourned many days, and his brothers came to comfort him. And Ephraim went in to his wife, and she conceived, and she bore a son. And he called his name Bariah, because disaster had befallen his, his house. His daughter was Shira, who built 
Beth, uh, both Lower and Upper Beth-Haran, and Uzan-Shira. Repha was his son, Reshef his son, Tela his son, Tehan, Ladan, Amahud, Elishama, Nun his son, Joshua his son. Their possessions and settlements were Bethel and its towns, and to the east, Naron, and to the west, Gezer and its towns, Shechem and its towns, and Aya and its towns. Also in possession of the Manassites, Bethshean and uh, its towns, or Bethshean and its towns, Tanakh and its towns, Megiddo and its towns, Dor and its towns, and in these lived the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel. Now, I like Bethshean, I like uh, Megiddo, because they're two places that we go to on our trip to Israel. Uh, and Bethshean is fantastic, and I just love going there. And, and those of you that will be going, I, I know you will, uh, are going to love it. And then we get to go to Megiddo, the site of the fields for Armageddon. Fantastic places here. But let me draw your attention to a couple of things here uh, in this particular thing. One, it, it says in verse 21, it speaks of Ezer and Iliad, two sons there of Ephraim that are killed. They're killed, it says, when they uh, perform a raid upon the people of Gath. Now we have a slide there, slide number 11, and you can see on that Mediterranean coast there that the Philistines possess that area of land. Uh, it, within the, the borders of the Promised Land, but still under the control of the Philistines at this time of this map. Uh, and it was that place that e Ezer and Iliad, or, or yeah, Iliad, they went down to to raid, and they were killed there. Interesting, that area of land is still disputed today. This would be the area uh, called the Gaza Strip that you probably have heard about. It's down in that particular area. Uh, and people like Ezer and Iliad, if they wander down there, would probably get into trouble even today. Uh, now, these two guys, their death causes their father, naturally, uh, to mourn. And his period of mourning for is an extended period of time, but then eventually it begins to lift, and it speaks of how he and his wife came together again. And as they did come together, they gave birth to a Bariah. Now, you, and then he says, because disaster has come upon us. Now, the name Bariah has a meaning to it, but it sounds very similar to the Hebrew word, which is disaster. And so this poor fella, every time they call his name, people think they're calling for disaster to come in. Uh, but that's him, that's who he is, and, and his circumstances of his birth. Now the reason why we've learned about Ezer and Iliad, the reason why we learned about the attack, it's not found in the scriptures. We don't have that story for us, uh, accounted for us in the scripture. Um, but certainly the event occurred, uh, just not something that you and I are familiar with as students of the word. But the reason why Ezra brings it up for us is so we could explain to us the circumstances of the birth of this fellow Bariah. Uh, and the purpose he's trying to explain then with the, the birth of this guy Bariah is verses 24 is because Bariah had a daughter whose name was Shira. And she built that area of land over there called Lower and Upper uh, Beth Haran as well as this one over here Uzan Shirah. And again, what is the purpose of Ezra? He's trying to spell out who lived where in this land so that when the people come back, their descendants can go and set up in those places as well. So that's the whole kind of the trail and the reason why he brings us down that particular trail. In verse 27, we read of a descendant of Ephraim by the name of Nun. And Nun gives birth to, uh, well, I guess his wife gave birth to a guy named Joshua. Now that's that Joshua that you're probably thinking of. This is the Joshua that served as Moses' right-hand man during the 40 years that they wandered through the wilderness. This is the Joshua that was one of the 12 tribes who, uh, excuse me, one of the 12 spies who along with Caleb went into the land, saw how wonderful it was, and came back and with Caleb said, the land is fantastic and the Lord is going to give it to us. Just like Deborah said earlier. But the other 10 uh, spies were the ones that came along and said, no, I'm not going in and I'm not bringing anybody with me and being responsible for everyone dying. And they were able to dissuade the people from going into the promised land. But not Joshua. Joshua and Caleb said, we can do this. They would eventually enter in. Joshua would be the one, he would be the brilliant military commander that would lead the children of Israel into the land, give them victory, set up shop where the people began to live in the promised land as God had been promising for 400 and some years uh, before that time. Moses led them to the land Joshua led them in. This is that Joshua that we're reading of here uh, in Ephraim. If we were back in Statuary Hall of the tribes, there would be a statue of Joshua, no doubt. Well, finally, we conclude chapter 7 by looking at the last of the tribes, and that is the tribe of Asher. 
Asher was the eighth son. This is slide 12 here. You can see where Asher set up shop. He was the eighth son of Israel. He was born of Leah, the concubine, Leah's concubine, Zilpah. And his name is pretty cool. His name means happy. He's happy. I like that. Uh, and the genealogy of the key leaders of this tribe is given to us in verse 30. And I'll let you read from 30 to 40 um, on your own. Now, as we move into chapter 8, we continue to look at genealogies, but this time we're done with the genealogies of the tribes. All right? We've looked at all the tribes. We've pointed out where their land is. And now we come back to a genealogy of a specific people. You remember when we began, we started with the genealogy of Adam, and then that brought us up to Abraham, and then that brought us uh, essentially to David, and so on. So we were looking at the genealogies of specific people. Then we began to carve out where those people lived, and now we come back to the genealogy of a specific person, and in verse 1, it begins, it said, Now Benjamin fathered Bella. Okay? Skip over, if you will, please, to verse 33, because essentially that's what you're going to read. This guy fathered that guy, who gave birth to that guy, and so on and so forth. And our purpose here, remember I said these types of genealogies are bridges. They're bringing us from one guy to another guy. I was telling you about him, now I want to tell you about this guy. Here's how we get to that guy. It's a bridge. And in verse 33, it says, Now Ner was the father of Kish, and Kish of Saul, and Saul of Jonathan. Saul is the fellow that we want to look, we want to, uh, look at together today. Hundreds of years in this chapter, scores of names that are listed for us, but one purpose, and that's to bring us to the place in into the history of the nation where this man Saul played a prominent place. Now this Saul is not to be confused with the Saul in the New Testament. That's the man whose name is later changed to Paul. He also was a Benjamin, Benjaminite, uh, but it's not the same guy we're talking about. This particular Saul is the one that would go on to be the first king of Israel. Handsome fella, the scripture tells us, um, stood head and shoulders above uh, his brethren. Everybody else, he was just sort of that head taller than everybody else there. Uh, and we learn some things about him. We learn that he began very well. We learn that he ended very poorly. Now the account of his life is primarily found in 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel chapter 9, we are introduced to the story of his, so to speak, coming to power. The event that is occurring in, in 1 Samuel 9 and the chapters leading up to and following uh, is basically this. He was younger. We don't know how old, how young, um, but not too old probably because his dad sends him essentially on an errand. Uh, his dad's donkeys had wandered off. Uh, and he says, Saul, come here. I need you to take one of the servants and go find our donkeys that have wandered off. And literally, you read the passage, and they begin to wander, it seems, around the nation of Israel. They're entering into different tribal, uh, like from the other tribes and everything. They're just moving all around trying to find these donkeys. And finally, Saul has the wisdom to say, look, if we don't get back soon, my dad's going to be worried more about us than he is the donkeys. Let's just say we couldn't find them. Let's call up, uh, you know, pull up the tents and, and give up. And so uh, the servant says, well, wait a minute. We're right here near this town that is called Zuf. Let's just go into Zuf because I know in Zuf there's a prophet that is in there, a prophet by the name of Samuel. He lives in this city. Let's go there. You know, maybe he'll know where the donkeys went. And so uh, they said, okay, let's do that. Now, unbeknownst to Saul, and this is great because this is the way that the Lord works. We talked last week about the way in which the Lord was working on Scott's heart, my heart, Eric's heart, and just doing things uh, within us. The Lord... Is, is just so cool. He's able to kind of do that and, and bring all the pieces together in his perfect timing. I just think it's neat. And so while Saul and uh, his servant are chasing these donkeys, wherever they may be, God is speaking to Samuel at the same time. I picture God as he's speaking to Samuel, kind of slapping the donkeys on the butt and getting them to run out of their cage because he's got work to do. And so they got to get a day ahead and God is kind of orchestrating the circumstances here. And so, unbeknownst to Saul, God told Samuel, this time tomorrow, there's going to be a young man that comes here from the tribe of Benjamin. You're to anoint him as king. And he's like, okay, we're not even in Benjaminite territory, but all right, you know, if that's what happens, that's what happens. Next day, here comes in Saul. And, and you know that Samuel is just sitting there thinking, God, you're just so cool. I knew you would do it. I had a little doubts, but I knew you would do it. God, you're just something else. And in comes Saul, and Samuel says to Saul, 
I'm glad you're here. Your donkeys are fine. Everything is great. You guys, you and your friend here, you're going to spend the night at my house. I'm the prophet. You're going to spend the night at my house. I'm going to make a fancy meal for you. You guys can go home in the morning. And Saul's response to that is recorded for us in 1 Samuel chapter 9. He says, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Do you sense the humility that is coming from Saul? You Saul realizes, hey man, look, I'm just a nobody. Please, you know, I, I just tell me where to go to find the donkeys. You don't have to put me up in your house. You don't have to uh, make me a fancy meal in the house of the prophet of Israel. I'm just a nobody. He was a man that was marked by humility. And it's men like that in the scripture, women like that in the scripture, that God can work through. God doesn't want to share his glory with us. He doesn't need to, and it certainly doesn't bring him honor to do so. And so the Lord chooses to work through men and women that are marked with humility. And Saul here is a man that is demonstrating that, that humility. And he began very well. Unfortunately, it didn't end very well for Saul. He didn't finish well. Because by the end of the seven or eight chapters that we have recorded, actually it's a little bit longer than that, but by the end of that period of time that we have recorded about King Saul, we begin to see a man who doesn't look to the Lord for wisdom anymore. He doesn't listen to the voice of Samuel anymore. He doesn't wait for God. But he gets ahead of God and he says, well, what do I need God for? I'm a king. I can do whatever I want to do. And these sorts of things. And as he is running off into this pride, it would have been helpful for him to remember Proverbs 16, 18, which many of you know, I'm sure. But it simply says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Such a valuable verse. You know, maybe we can get into something where as a church we're memorizing verses each month or something like that. This would be a valuable verse, a verse to live by, a verse to, to remind us to constantly guard our hearts and to make sure that we're not drifting off into pride. We're not moving ahead. Remember I told you one of my chief concerns when I felt that the Lord was directing me to pastor a fellowship on my own, one of my chief concerns is that all of that thinking was coming from a place of pride. And certainly I didn't want that to be the case because pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. If only Saul had taken heed to the truth of that principle, how different things could have been. But as we saw, the kingdom was uh, taken, snatched from Saul because of it. We need to be a people that are diligent about preventing any root or any seed of pride from taking root in our lives. The Apostle Peter, for instance, who says to the Lord Jesus, in front of the other disciples, the nerve. But he says, all of these guys, these clowns over here, they may betray you, but Lord, I never will. And within hours, he was denying, it says, with curses that he even knew the Lord. The danger of pride. The Apostle Paul cautions against the too soon laying on of hands upon a person uh, to, to make them an elder within your body. And he cautions, don't do it too quickly. And he says, Let, lest the elder be lifted up with pride. Now, if they were going to lay hands on this guy to become the elder of their church, chances are that guy was doing pretty good in his walk with the Lord. He was loving the Lord. He was serving the Lord. He was dealing with sin uh, in his life. He was praying. He was caring for other people, all these sorts of things. Uh, and yet, Paul knows that even a person that is doing great in the Lord, if pride makes its way in there and finds its way in there, that that person can fall and that person can stumble. And so he says, be careful and don't lay hands on a person too quickly. So we need to be diligent about pursuing humility. There's a great book by Andrew Murray that is called Humility. I like the book, small little book. And he defines humility as this. He says, it is the sense of entire nothingness which comes when we see how truly God is all and in which we make way for God to be all. I think that is extreme. Maybe for our culture and who we are as Americans uh, or people living in the United States of America, and we're told to be proud of ourselves and told to lift ourselves up and look out for number one, Pride might be a dangerous sin that affects us. Perhaps it does people of other cultures even more so. And so we need to be a care, uh, people that are extremely careful that it doesn't find a root within our lives. It found a root within Saul. The idea of Murray's words is that we measure ourselves rightly, not against the standards of others around us, but against the true standard bearer who is the person of the Lord Jesus. When we think of humility, many times I think we think of brokenness, over our sin, and I think that's important. A recognition of our sin will certainly have the effect of humbling us 
some cases even humiliating us, we might think. But I think the, what really changes us and what really breaks us as a, as a person that is struggling with pride uh, and establishes within each of us a heart that is not puffed up with pride, but rather is marked by humility, is when we have a right thinking of the goodness and the magnitude of God. And so rather than, I think, meditating on our sin and what a louse I am and how horrible I am as a person, which is true, but I think we want to meditate on the goodness of God and the magnitude of God and the grace of God and the holiness of God and how altogether different I am from him, and yet he still loves me and he still reaches out a hand of fellowship to me. That humbles a man and a woman. That breaks us and puts us in a good place. So my counsel as it relates to this to you guys today is guard your heart. That's my counsel to myself as well. See yourself rightly. You are a sinner in desperate need of a Savior, and that God demonstrated his love for us in no better example than in the person of the Lord Jesus on the cross. So, what's your takeaway? I like what Scott's father used to say uh, when he pastored. So what? You you, you sat here for 40 minutes or so. So what? What are you going to do with this? What's your takeaway? What little nugget can you carry away with you to meditate on and apply to your daily walk with Jesus this week? Maybe it'll be the example of Deborah, who looked at the circumstances, but yet she diligently followed the Lord out into the battle, and she came away victorious. Maybe it'll be from the lesson of the daughters of Zelph. Had. Thank you, Roberto. You guys, how could you forget? My goodness. Of the daughters of Zelophehad, uh, essentially they said, look, in the eyes of others, even most people, we may not be very significant, but regardless, we intend to inherit the possession of the promised land. I may not be something great. You know, I haven't gone off to seminary. I'm not some pastor, you might say. You know, I'm not some small group leader here, but I'm a follower of Christ. And the scripture teaches me that as a follower of Christ, this is my inheritance. Again, read Ephesians 1 through 3. That's your homework this week. Um, but read it. This is my inheritance, and I intend to possess it. That's essentially what the daughters of Zelophehad said. And then finally, uh, maybe the lesson that you take with you, the nugget that you hold on to, is the negative lesson of Saul. The, the negative example, I guess you might say, of a man that was, didn't guard his heart and was lifted up in pride, and it led to his destruction. We need to be a people that guard our hearts. Well, whatever it may be, my prayer is that you will take something from our time together. That this isn't just some academic time, but the Lord has done a surgery within our hearts every time we gather. And that God would use his time to challenge you and to refine you and to cause you to become more like Jesus. Amen? Well, if that's the case, and if God did speak to your heart, then I'll leave you with this verse. It says, Be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being not a hearer only, uh, a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, that man will be blessed in his doing. Let's pray. And Father, we certainly do not want to be, Lord, hearers only. What good is it to get up and to come and to sit if we're not going to allow your word to change us? Or what good is it for us to meet each day with you in our quiet time if we're not going to allow you to expose us? So, Father, we want to uh, not only just be exposed by your word today, but we want to be people that are changed. We want to give this area to you. We want to see, Lord, the newness of life that you've designed for us, that process of sanctification that you want for each one of us. We want to see that taking place. And so, Father, humbly, we just present ourselves to you. And in the quietness of this couple of moments, I would just ask for everyone here, let's just take a moment, say a prayer to the Lord, let him know what he's been doing in your hearts, you know, speak it back to him, so to speak, what he's been doing in your heart. And ask him to change you, especially over this next week. And Father, we know that you hear our prayer. 
We know that we have access to your throne room because of the work of Christ. Search me and know me, Lord. Search me, know me, try me and see every worthless affection. Clothe me in robes of right. 
righteousness cover my nakedness with grace all of my life before you now I humbly
Worship his holy name. Sing like never before. Oh, my soul, worship your holy name. I worship. I worship your holy name. I worship. I worship your holy name. Amen. Father, we worship your holy name. Search us, Lord. Dig deep. We praise you. Go before us now as we celebrate. Amen. <laughs> 